Hello and welcome back to State of Mind with nutritional therapist Grace Kingswell. That's me. Apologies for the week's holiday last week. I'm sure you didn't miss me too much, but I'm happy to be back today with another informative episode, Should Everyone Be Gluten and Dairy Free? The million dollar question. Today, I'm welcoming Robin Puglia back to the podcast, as there was simply no one better to speak to about gluten than a professional that also happens to be a celiac, with years of experience dealing with complex cases of gluten sensitivity and autoimmune gluten reactivity. Robin is a nutritional therapist and IFM certified functional medicine practitioner. She specializes in autoimmune disease, gluten reactive disorders, including celiac disease and complex cases and unexplained illness. We also touch on dairy in this episode too, as gluten and dairy are often lumped together. Get ready to learn a lot that you didn't know about gluten. On with the episode. So Robin, you need very little introduction, but First things first, a huge thank you for coming back on the podcast to talk all things gluten. Um, I'm really, yeah, I just can't wait to get into this topic. And I know that you're going to, um, I don't, I don't, upset I don't a lot of people. yeah, upset a lot of people. So you are celiac, aren't you? So gluten issues are something that you really know firsthand. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah. So I was diagnosed celiac after 19 years of symptoms. Um, so going gluten-free radically changed my life. I talk about it all the time. Um, and But then I didn't really pay that much attention after that. I went gluten-free. I wasn't that good at being gluten-free in the beginning. It was a bit of a journey. Mm. Um, I got better at it as I healed my body because once I was really in the process of healing, when I had a little bit of gluten, I had a much bigger reaction to it, which is normal. That's how your immune system is supposed to work. Um, so I cheated less and less. I started studying nutrition, um, and then learned much, you know, eventually in the, in the process of my education, learned much more about celiac disease and the extra intestinal, like the effects of gluten on the body, the effects of gluten on the brain, um, all the different kinds of reactions you can have to gluten, because of Mm. course not everybody has a gluten reactive autoimmune disease. There's lots of different Mm. ways gluten can be a problem started reaching out to the community, listening to people's stories. And, you know, the research has come far. You know, when I when I was diagnosed was 2004 and not very much was known. There was a ton of stuff in the medical literature, but it wasn't being talked about. Um, so now it's a much bigger subject. More people know about it. Um, yeah. It's, really, I mean, it's been, it's been the, the ocean that I've been swimming in for a long time. So I've been certainly and I don't know if we're going to manage to get this into half an hour. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, so am I right in saying, first of all, that less than 1% of the UK population has uh, a diagnosis of celiac disease? Um, is that right? Yeah. yeah. yeah it's a, so celiac prevalence is about 1% of the Western population. Mm. Which I think is something that um, those that are quite happy to say that gluten is not an issue for our health use that statistic as a almost just a way of saying therefore you can eat bread if you're not in that one percent or you shouldn't need to worry about it or you don't need to engage in this dialogue you don't need to be worried about having um, symptoms because less than one percent is a tiny fraction so let's talk first of all about the difference between celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity Okay, so they're both immune-mediated, 
effect, meaning that the immune system is creating inflammation as a direct result from eating gluten for both of those, but the mechanism is different. So your immune system has got different branches. The defence force of a country has different branches, right? So you've got the army, the navy, the air force, the coast guard, and the the aim of each of those is the same, right? The you know the overarching uh, goal of the defence force is the same, but each of those has different tools and different mechanisms that they use. And you can't send a helicopter to do something that you need a submarine for. Mm-hmm. You know that the, the They're specific in what they do. So your immune system is the same. You've got different arms of the immune system. They have different tools that they use. They have different weapons that they use. And so when you're talking about celiac disease versus non-celiac gluten sensitivity, it's both the immune system, they're both inflammatory, but it's different branches of the immune system and they're using different tools um, and therefore the mechanisms are slightly different. So with celiac disease, celiac disease is very specific. It is an autoimmune reaction that must include specific damage to a specific part of the gut, so villus atrophy. Um, If it doesn't meet that criteria, then it's not celiac disease. So it doesn't matter what the other other inclusions of the health issue are. If it doesn't include that part of the gut, then it's not celiac disease. So you've talked about celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but I'm going to throw a third one in there, which is gluten-reactive autoimmunity. Mm -hmm. So Hashimoto's, for example, um, can be a gluten-reactive autoimmunity. It's not 100% of the time, but it is a significant percent of the time. Dermatitis herpetiformis is a gluten-reactive autoimmunity of the skin. Gluten ataxia is a gluten-reactive autoimmunity of the brain. So all of those different um, diseases have the same immune um, mechanism involved and just different target tissues. Mm -hmm. So it's T cell mediated, it's T and B cell mediated. There are antibodies. Um, Antibodies are a flag that the immune system uses to mark a tissue out for destruction. That flag then communicates to the T cells to come in with inflammatory uh, messengers, which are like bullets. Um, And then, you know, there's damage that's done to a specific tissue. So Mm -hmm. that's gluten reactive autoimmunity and celiac disease is part of that. The Queen of Analogies is back. (laughs) (laughs) We're telling a story. (laughs) So non-celiac gluten sensitivity in as much as it's been mapped out in the medical literature because it's a recent recent area of research. doesn't involve the T cells and the B cells in the same way. The immune messaging is different. The immune communication is different. So it is still inflammation that is caused as a result of eating gluten and it's a Mm -hmm. systemic issue, but it doesn't target a specific tissue. It is non-specific. So it's considered to be a little bit less aggressive. It's considered to be a little bit less serious. Um, But the reality is that from person to person, um, there's not a standard. So your gluten, uh, your non-celiac gluten sensitivity can make you feel profoundly sick. It can affect any and every tissue in the body. Um, but it's not autoimmune. It's mm-hmm. not specifically autoimmune. So celiac disease can affect every single and does affect every single tissue in the body. But to be celiac disease, it must also include that damage to the gut. So it can be inflammation of the brain and the gut. It can be mm-hmm. inflammation of the joints and the gut. It, it's a whole body issue. But to be classified as celiac disease, it has to include that gut damage. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't gut damage it's not celiac disease but it could still be gluten reactive autoimmunity so you've mentioned there lots of different sites of impact that that gluten has and 
let's talk about that because obviously mostly what people assume um, to be associated with gluten is GI symptoms. So digestive upset, bloating, that kind of thing. How does eating gluten affect, you mentioned the brain, um, you mentioned the skin. What is the mechanism within the body? Like what happens when we eat gluten? So when we eat gluten, there's quite a few things that go on. So first of all, your immune system generally doesn't cause digestive dysfunction, like digestive symptoms, sorry. Your immune system doesn't really cause bloating, for example. Your immune system doesn't create gas. The microbes in your gut create gas and gas causes bloating. Um, So if you're having digestive gut-mediated symptoms, you might also be having immune symptoms, but it's more likely that the gut, the digestive part of it is because of microbial disruption in the gut. Mm -hmm. So, um, so those two things are not necessarily connected. There's a statistic that says for every person with a celiac diagnosis, there are seven people who are walking around with end stage celiac disease without a diagnosis because they don't have any gut symptoms. And that was certainly me. I didn't have any gut symptoms at all. Um, So gluten itself and the immune reaction to gluten, even if it's end stage, severe, um, you know, the immune, the inflammation itself doesn't necessarily cause digestive symptoms or doesn't cause digestive symptoms, I would say, a significant percent of the time. So Mm -hmm. the other thing to remember is that your immune system starts in your mouth. Um, That's the first point of contact. So when you come into contact with, if you put gluten in your mouth and then spit it back out again, you've got immunoglobulins in your saliva and immunoglobulins are, you know, communication. They act as a communication messenger molecule. So you can have an immune reaction that starts from the mouth um, and then spreads up into the body. So when you eat gluten, gluten is a protein and proteins are like words. It's a string of amino acids. Amino acids are like letters. So your immune system is trained to recognize um, certain portions of the protein. So if you think about um, um, gluten itself has several hundred amino acids in a string. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, patterns within that several hundred amino acids will jump out of the immune system. And so the immune system is trained to recognize somewhere between three and 50 amino acids in sequence and when your immune when your immune system comes into contact with that part of gluten um it starts an immune messaging and communication chain you know chinese whispers happens um so that can happen anywhere that can happen in the skin that can happen in the mouth that can happen in any part of the digestive tract and then that starts a chain reaction that spreads up into the body so let's say it starts on the gut wall uh, that inflammatory message goes from the blo- from the outside of the gut wall um, to the inside of the gut wall. Um, then you have other immune cells in there that pick up the message and then they start spreading it around. So it goes into the lymphatic system, it goes to the liver, um, it goes you know, into the systemic circulation, it can cross the blood-brain barrier. It's a series of, it's a relay race by that point. So that inflammatory message gets passed around the body. Um, and... And then your your individual susceptibility will tell you where it lands. So whatever the weak link in your chain is, is where that inflammation will cause the most problems. So if you have um, the weak link in your chain is neurological, then it can set up neurological inflammation for you. If it's in the joints, it can set up joints. If it's skin, it can set up you know skin issues. So it, literally every tissue in the body is susceptible. 
So if you have a previous injury, if you have a previous susceptibility or whatever your genetics are will kind of determine where it lands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Alessio Fasano, who is one of, is probably the most famous celiac researcher now, um, who wrote a book called Gluten Freedom. You know, he's very famous for the quote, your gut is not Las Vegas. What happens in the gut doesn't stay in the gut. So that's, you know, that is perfect for gluten what happens on the gut wall spreads everywhere in the body Mm. Um, and it happens via this you know immune communication so obviously some people some people will be experiencing symptoms potentially related to gluten but they don't know that it's related to gluten because it might be something like brain fog it might be like anxiety or depression it might be eczema um Mm -hmm. hives rashes so are you saying essentially that, um, I mean, so why, why then are we so much more susceptible to the effects of gluten now? Because it's, we've been eating it for centuries and centuries. Like we've always made bread. We've always had gluten in our diet. Why is it a problem? So this is the $64 million question that you're asking me. (laughs) Nobody really has an answer. There are a lot of theories around why. So part of that is, um, you know, wheat has been hybridized a little bit so it's been it's been selectively grown in order to be more productive from an industrial perspective so the wheat that we grow now looks different than the wheat that we were growing 50 years ago 100 years ago Mm. Um, it's not genetically modified that's not what I'm talking about in this instance but um, it has been bred in a certain way in order to uh, increase some certain characteristics that make it better for farming and um, that could potentially probably be problematic. We eat a lot more processed foods. You know, w- when we eat bread, it's very unlikely that you ground the wheat into flour yourself um, and then made that bread with your hands, with water, with yeast. You didn't let it prove overnight, you know, the way that our grandparents or great-grandparents did. You know, the process is very different. Um, bread now is made very rapidly. So, it, you know... Um, that makes a really big difference. The way we treat our food really changes the way that it interacts with the immune system. Um, We are different, right? We're different than our grandparents. We are three generations now in to uh, antibiotic use. Did I talk about this on the last podcast? Um, Antibiotic use, contraceptive pill, um, you know, standard over-the-counter availability of medicines that change the way the body works and change the immune system. You know, we're taking Mm. over-the-counter anti-inflammatories. We're drinking a lot of alcohol as a society. We're stressed in a way our grandparents were not. All of these things really profoundly affect the way the immune system interacts with the environment. So even if the environment you know, even if the wheat was exactly the same, our immune systems are different because of toxic chemicals and how much BPA we're exposed to and hand sanitizer and all of those things profoundly change the way that our immune system interacts with environmental antigens, which would include gluten. We also, we have things like glyphosate, you know, we're spraying the wheat in order to, I think, dry it out. So even if it's organic, um, mm. you know, it's still being treated in a particular way and those, you know, those things have an impact as well. And I don't know if there is one variable. It might be the, the compounded effect of all of those things together just mean, and we're also eating it much more, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. It's in thickening agents. It's in, you know, if we're not thinking about it, it's probably in your tea bag. It's probably, you know, they use it for glue. They put it on stand, like, you know. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's really inescapable unless you're properly trying to avoid it. So there's lots of reasons that it's 
um, that it has changed so rapidly, I think. So in a sense, it doesn't matter if you're buying really good quality artisan sourdough from your local bakery, dare I say it, in East London that's been, you know, fermented for hours and hours and hours because actually what's changed and is us, like our bodies have changed. Our bodies have changed. So if you've lost tolerance to gluten, if your immune system doesn't tolerate gluten, it doesn't matter if it's artisan and beautiful or, you know, uh, highly processed and from the supermarket, your immune system doesn't tolerate that protein anymore. If you are somebody whose immune system tolerates gluten, then that makes a big difference from a nutritional perspective, from whether or not that food is good for you, yes or no. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you because wheat is one of the most abundant um, prebiotics in the diet. So from a gut health perspective, absolutely that artisanal, you know, beautifully fermented organic ancient wheat bread is much much better for you, better for the gut, better for the immune system than the, you know, mighty white wonder bread Mm. um, without question. But that's where, so there isn't a right answer to that question because it will be individual. Mm. So one is definitely a choice than the other one, but whether or not you tolerate that is a question. So how do people know? Um, How do they, how do they work this out for themselves? Obviously there's so many companies online these days offering allergy tests um, and, you know, they'll like take some of your hair if you put it in the post and tell you what you're allergic to. And, you know, it is like so many topics in health and nutrition. It's a minefield for the, for the average um, man or woman. Um, so what is the best way of, like, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, actually, I have got some of those symptoms that Robin's talking about, or maybe my brain fog's related to gluten, even though I don't have any bloating or digestive upset, what do you do? So there are two two avenues that I would encourage you to explore. So the first is testing, um, but seek out a health professional and do IgA or IgG testing or both. Um, and have a look and see what your immune system is telling you. Um, But the second one, because there are different ways, outside of immune reactivity, there are other ways that you can have a negative reaction to wheat. So if you cut it out for a month and then reintroduce it, um, that to a certain point is the gold standard around, around symptoms. If you take away a food and you feel better and you reintroduce that food and you feel bad, right? Body language never lies. Mm. Um, you know, when your body's telling you something, listen to it, you know, don't think, well, if I just have a sandwich every couple of weeks, it'll be okay. You know, if your body's Mm. telling you it doesn't like a food, then listen to what your body's telling you. Um, So because there is something in that, and then you might choose to work with somebody and investigate what it is exactly. Is it immune mediated? Do you have to cut it out forever? Or is it something that can be corrected? Um, If you change your gut microbiome, will you be able to reintroduce the food? You know, there's lots of different um, variables and shades of grey mm. involved there, but those are really the two that I would say. I would say don't do a hair sample to see if you're reacting to a food. <laughs> I just, I, I know, I bring that up because I quite often get um, DMs on Instagram, people sending me their test results from like a really shady lab, and uh, they and it's like every they're like allergic to everything. It's like eggs, gluten, dairy, shellfish, you know, all of the main ones plus loads of random things. And you just think. This is no way to live your life. Like you, the ideal is you don't want to have to be allergic to stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I about to say? I had a question. Oh, yes. With regards to reintroducing, like doing an elimination diet, which, yeah, totally is the gold standard. 
could um could you have a delayed reaction to gluten like is it instantaneous or could it be three days later it can definitely be three days later and in fact when it's immune mediated and especially if it's extra intestinal so if it's your brain or your skin so my symptoms so end stage celiac like the biggest immune reaction that you can have to gluten it takes two weeks for my symptoms to arrive after i eat gluten it's very fair maybe twice that i can remember in the nearly 20 years now since i was diagnosed have i ever had an immediate reaction um so yes there can definitely be a delayed reaction most people igg antibodies um tend to uh be present enough to cause symptoms within three days so we, when you're reintroducing, we recommend that you eat the food uh, three times a day on the first day and then wait two more days mm. um, and monitor your symptoms for those three days and see if there's anything that happens on the second day or the third day. If you eat it for breakfast on the first day and you immediately feel sick, don't eat it again, right? Listen, yeah. listen when your body tells you, you don't have to keep going after that. You, yeah. get, an answer, you get an answer. You don't have to push it further than that. Um, would you be able to go quickly into, because I love this topic, um, the cross-reactivity of proteins between especially like gluten and then what's happening in your brain? Because I think this is where it comes into really um, harsh light, just how damaging it can be. Yeah, definitely. So, so cross-reactivity is also known as molecular mimicry. Um, so you see those two terms used interchangeably a little bit. So most of the research around molecular mimicry is done on infectious agents and human tissue. Um, and what that means, so I already talked about the protein and the ability of the immune system to recognize patterns within the protein. So, but a protein is several hundred amino acids long and your immune system can recognize everything that is three amino acids or longer. So what happens is if we, if I change my analogy slightly and we talk about it like the spelling of a word um, so if you have a word that is 40 letters long but right in the middle um, are the letters a a a p p t t g you can have that exact sequence in a different protein um, a a a p p t t g can be in an infection or a food or your thyroid or your brain the cerebellum of your brain or your myelin um, and once your immune system knows to recognize that pattern um, if it comes into contact with that if you are sensitized to that pattern from an infection let's say you have um, a cytomegalovirus infection and your immune system is reacting to that pattern if you have that same pattern in your thyroid then your immune system will also recognize it in the thyroid and will become sensitized and react to the thyroid so this is one of the ways that autoimmunity can start because your immune system is attempting to defend you against something that it has recognized as being a problem but it's not the problem that it's reacting to now it's your tissue so mm. the same thing happens with foods um, and this is fairly well documented as well in the literature so there are proteins in food that have the same pattern as proteins in tissue and um, and so your immune system when you come into contact with that food can attack your tissue and that's a direct driver of autoimmunity um, mm. or can end in autoimmune disease. So we see myelin can cross-react with dairy products, for example. Gluten can cross-react with the cerebellum tissue, which um, you know the cerebellum is the region of the brain that's involved with balance. So that's um, when we talk about gluten ataxia, that's the cerebellum that's damaged. Um, but the same thing can happen with type 1 diabetes, you know, with the, um, with the proteins involved in type 1 diabetes that can cross-react with gluten as well. Um, you know, 
Hashimoto's can cross-react with foods. Um, so the, the target proteins in the thyroid, sorry, can react with foods in Hashimoto's. You know, it's it's a developing area of research, but it's very interesting to me. Um, mm. And it's definitely one of the mechanisms behind gluten reactivity, but it's also how we're going to end up. I think this is the future of autoimmunity and understanding the personalised nature between foods and, and autoimmunity in general outside mm. of gluten. Okay. And because gluten and dairy get sort of lumped together quite often, um, can we touch on quickly the, 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 the dairy issue? Now, I think probably more people um, who don't have like a diagnosed issue with either gluten or dairy are dairy free more than gluten free, because let's be honest, dairy alternatives are fine and gluten alternatives just a lot of the time don't stand up. I mean, you can't beat sourdough. Um, but I've already, I've already upset the people of, of uh, Instagram and my podcast by telling them that they can no longer drink Oatly Barista milk. So I may as well just go for it. Um, now, do we lose the enzyme that digests lactose as we age? This is something that people say. So that is possible, yes. A lot of people don't have um, very good genetics around that enzyme anyway. But the issue, lactose, is that's a digestive issue, right? So what we're talking about there is digestive symptoms, diarrhea, <laughs> constipation, pain, um, bloating, distension, you know, digestive discomfort. So that definitely that is um, a possibility. But the res- resolution of that is really simple. You can, you can supplement with lactase, the enzyme involved, and then mm-hmm. that fixes that problem mm-hmm. immune mediated issues are a little bit more complicated so dairy um, there's lots of different ways you can react to dairy the same as you can react to gluten and I think it's important to understand that part of the reason that those two food groups are um, known as being troublemakers you know they're known as being pro-inflammatory is because our digestive system cannot break them down properly so in order for your immune system to not react to a protein it has to be broken down by the digestive system into individual amino acids or dipeptides which is two amino acids joined together so out of that several hundred by the time that you've chewed it and it's gone through your stomach acid and it's been exposed to your um, bile and it's been exposed to your pancreatic enzymes and it's been exposed to your brush border enzymes it should be broken down into individual amino acids it's like a lego piece mm-hmm. this is how food works you know you can make a very intricate pirate ship out of lego and you can break that pirate ship down into lego pieces and then assemble the death star out of the same pieces and that's what your body does with food you take a complex structure you break it down into its individual lego pieces and then you assemble your body out of those pieces every hormone every tissue every eyelash is made out of those lego pieces that come from food mm-hmm. You have to be able to break it down into those individual Lego pieces. That's what your digestive system is for. And when you do that, you don't have immune reactivity to it. If you can't do that, you end up with big chunks and your immune system can react to that. But we don't have the right um, digestive systems to break down gluten or casein. It's not human digestion doesn't do that. So we end up with these chunks and that's why they're much more immune reactive because they're big compared to the individual Lego pieces that we need. Mm. So again, total tangent. So did I answer your question? Because I can't remember what the question was. Yeah, you did. And I guess same question again, um, but relating to dairy, not gluten. Mm -hmm. Dairy is something that's been part of of our lives for centuries. You know, we've always milked cows and our ancestors would have drunk and drunk their milk. So um, 
if we cannot digest that protein and break it down into its individual pieces, did they have an issue with dairy? Or is it, again, just that we've changed? Possibly, but I would say we've changed more. We also treat our cows a bit differently. You know, we pump them full, we keep them pregnant all the time. We pump them full of antibiotics. We pump them full of hormones and steroids. Um, you know, it's not, what did Mark Hyman say the other day? It's not the cow, it's the how. Yeah. Um, you know, that's talking about eating meat, but I certainly think that that's also applicable to the dairy as well. Mm -hmm. But definitely our ability to tolerate our environment is poor. It's much worse now because of all of the things that we are exposed to. Mm. Um, and and how ubiquitous it is as well. You know, using food proteins in everything is problematic. You know, they use casein in a lot of things as well. They're thickening agents and um, shampoo and wheat protein and conditioner. And you know, it's it's we can't get away from it. And our yeah. body has much less ability to tolerate our environment as well. Mm. And how about um, goats and sheep's milk? So it depends. Some people do tolerate that better. People who have digestive issues mainly can tolerate that better. But once you've lost immune reactivity to casein, casein is casein, so that's any animal. I would, you know, suggest for those people that you have to avoid cow, sheep, goat, mare, camel, you know, mm. if you've got casein, you probably need to avoid it. Okay. But so, that's an individual thing. You can't you can't make a blanket statement. You need to assess that on a person to person basis. Mm. So the quality of the dairy definitely matters. Definitely. Um, but would you say then, Robin, million dollar question to round up the podcast, that mm. everyone should be gluten and dairy free? No. So I'm definitely not that practitioner that thinks that. I think about twenty percent of the population. Um, based on what I've read and also what I've seen in clinical practice. I think it's, I think that number is about 20% um, in some form or another, right? Don't tolerate wheat, dairy, or gluten. Mm -hmm. That means 80% of the population don't have an immune problem with it. They might have a digestive related issue with it, um, but, you know, should be choosing good quality, organic, you know, um, from a milk perspective, you know, full fat, organic, not overly processed, not treated, you know, excessively with antibiotics, whole, you know, whole products from a gluten perspective, you know, organic fermented sourdough, not eating it every day, not eating it three meals a day. You know, the inclusion of both of those foods, if you have immune tolerance to those foods is beneficial. They are nutritious. You'll have improved gut bacteria. There's, you know, fantastic fatty acids and short chain fatty acids in um you know in good quality dairy products just don't have them as a staple you know include them as um a couple of times a week don't mm -hmm. overdo it you know back to my little catchphrase of diversity abundance variety yeah know? yeah pleasure to be part of it as well yeah mm. and lastly just because it it popped into my head and it's relevant to me um, and these podcasts, let's face it, it's always an opportunity for just me to indulge myself. Um, the There is, like in the literature, there is a huge link between dairy and eczema. Would you be able to just touch on that for us? Sure. Um, so I would say that's true. So eczema, there is definitely a food reactivity component to eczema. And I think the three most... Um, reactive foods or the three most commonly reactive foods with eczema are eggs, dairy, wheat, and fish off the top of my head. Um, with 
eggs and dairy being the top two in there. Mm. But what I've, what I've seen in my clinical practice actually is that um, I think one of the things that happens early is that that has to do with, and again, this is not everybody and this is not a criticism. So I'm not, um, uh, I don't want anybody to take what I'm about to say as uh, an indictment of any kind, but I, I suspect that it has something to do with formula, cow's milk formula, mm. um, that a lot of, a lot of, eczema we see starts in infancy and even if it goes away and comes back later and I personally think it's because the cow's milk proteins in, in formula um, are not well tolerated by the specific infant mm. um, and I think that can prop I think that I I personally think that's um, part of it but certainly mm. dairy and eggs so I know at least one pediatrician who calls eczema eczema because the relationship between egg reactivity and eczema is so profound. But again, you need to test because it can be anything, you know, um, I react to olive oil. Really? Yeah. Can you imagine how annoying that is for a nutritionist? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do for salads in the summer? Like a Greek salad without olive oil. oil. (laughs) Oh gosh. Salads. But yeah, it's a, it's an absolute nightmare because try eating in a healthy restaurant without <laughs> oil. Yeah. Um, so it can be it can literally be anything. When you break oral tolerance, you can react to anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, I think we've we've covered lots of bases. Is there anything else that you want to add for people listening that either might be confused or hating us a bit? <laughs> so there is there's. What I want to say, I guess, is, um, you know, nutrition is never always anything. So you have to listen to your body and work out your personal relationship with each food that we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are confused, if you're having trouble working it out, if the water is really muddy, then do find yourself a really good nutritionist or a functional medicine practitioner and do some testing if you you can, uh, if that's a viable option for you. And then lastly, I'm going to plug somebody else. (laughs) So Naomi Devlin is a um a health food chef who has a very very excellent um gluten-free cooking course that you can do online she's written several gluten-free cookbooks for but i can never remember who maybe river cottage i get confused between Ooh. river cottage and river cafe um river cottage she writes their gluten-free baking and gluten-free cookbooks and she's got a really brilliant online i'm not affiliated in any way by the way she doesn't know i'm talking about her right now but um she has a very good gluten-free sourdough um, oh great online, online course that you can do so if you you know if you're worried about giving up gluten because you think your quality of life is going to go down then I promise you Naomi's got the answer okay all right I, I mean I did try a buckwheat sourdough recently and it was a huge <laughs> failure but um, I'm sure you, everyone that's listening I'm sure you can do it um, and I guess actually that's just brought up something that I quickly really want to say um, which is that if you are going to go gluten-free for four weeks and test it please don't just raid the gluten-free aisles of, of supermarkets. Um, it's not helpful. It might cause more problems anyway. Um, it's heavily processed. It's really sugary. There's fillers and stabilizers and gums. And From a nutritional perspective, gluten-free foods are way worse than gluten-containing foods. Yeah. So if you are going to try gluten-free, just be naturally gluten-free. Proteins, you know, beans, legumes, vegetables, you know, you can have a very broad, varied on diet without the need mm. for chocolate muffins for sure mm. yeah and I think that's uh, that is a good point to end on which is that 
you know, if you are cutting anything out from your diet, you're doing it for a reason. And I personally think that you shouldn't then just try and replicate that gluten-free or dairy-free. So if you're cutting out gluten, then you probably shouldn't eat a gluten-free pizza. You should make yourself something else. (laughs) Um, okay, amazing. Well, let's leave it there, Robin. Thank you so much again for coming on. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what people think of the episode. I look forward to it too. I hope there's not too much vitriol <laughs> thrown your way after the oat milk, what's oat, oat milk gate. They're coming for me. Thank you so much for tuning back into State of Mind. Don't forget to leave a quick review on the Apple Podcast app if you enjoy the podcast. It helps so much, but I still have no idea why. I think it's something to do with the algorithm. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.